Hello and welcome. You've tuned in to the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. Let's look at James chapter 2. I'd like to begin verse 1 again, reading through verse 4. Although the context will take us through about verse 13, and I've been studying this and already have the next two messages already prepared in this. So the the theme continues on, even though we're stopping at verse 4 today, the theme continues on and we'll be looking at that because he begins in verse 1 of chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand there, or you sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Let's stop right there. We talked about last week how so many in the early church were of the poor. We did talk about the exceptions, that there were some that had some great wealth. Lord willing, we'll talk about men like uh, Zacchaeus and some others that Christ really changed their lives. Well, we're going to spend a little more time looking at, at some of their lives after they changed, some that came to Christ, but their life wasn't changed. They wanted to hold on to the earthly goods that they had. I took us through a little trip through Scripture that the majority of the early church was made up of poor, but kind of interspersed were those that had some means like Aquila and Priscilla that had a home and that church was able to meet in that home. And so that was an important concept for us to understand that God will provide what each of his churches needs. He's going to provide for our needs. And it's an important then that we look at what James is pointing out here in chapter 2, verse 1, how unlike God is from us. That sometimes we tend to classify or we want to put certain categories or stratify people. Looking at this, he begins with my brothers. He uses this introduction pretty frequently. We've seen it already because if you remember, and then also we see it again in verse 5, just past where we were. Listen, my beloved brethren. And every time James does this. He's introducing a new thought. He's introducing something to us. In chapter 1, verse 2, we saw that he said, my brother, and he launches off into this whole matter of trials and then temptations. In chapter 1, verse 16, he said, do not err, my beloved brethren. And then he goes on to say something about how we should respond to God's word. Now in chapter 2, he says, my brethren, and he's going into a whole new section dealing with our being impartial. And then in chapter 3, he'll say again, beginning in verse 1, my brethren, a whole discussion about the tongue. 
And then chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Speak not evil of one another and brethren. And he goes into exhorting and helping people to learn how to speak to one another. Chapter 5, verse 7, he exhorts them to be patient brethren under the coming of the Lord. So over and over, James uses this because he has a pastor's heart. That's why he says, my brethren. He, he's about to show some tremendous truths, but he wants you to know that you're brothers. He wants you to know that he has a pastor's heart. He cares. He's not going to browbeat. He's not going to pound this onto somebody, but he wants us to see this is an important concept that we need to follow after and be like unto Christ. And so the original Greek, the order goes, my brethren, and then the very next phrase is, with respect to persons. So he says, my brethren, with respect to persons. Now, we get that at the end of verse 1, with partiality, and that's what with partiality means, with respect to persons. So that's what he's saying. He's saying, my brothers, with respect to persons, do not hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. The Greek language has something called the emphatic clause. And that's what he's putting emphasis on here. And that's what James is using here. He's saying, my brethren, don't have respect. Don't have partiality. Or, or now we're going to look into this whole matter of respecting certain people over others. So what does he mean by respect of persons? And that is that idea of partialities, and the word is a plural word. The root of it means really to lift up someone's face. You're lifting up their face, to raise the face of someone, to elevate them. Literally, it means to lift up their faces. So the idea is to judge someone by their face value, to exalt them on a superficial level. That's what it's explaining here. On a superficial level, we raise up someone's face. We just look at superficially how they look. What do we think of their value? We like the way they look. We like the way they dress. We like the vehicles they drive or something like that. And, and so we put on, in our own humanness, in our own fallenness, we begin to show respect for certain persons and disrespect for others. So we put a superficial evaluation on a person's worth based on nothing but what appears on the outside. That's what James is telling us. When you put a worth on somebody based on what you see, he's saying, do not. My brethren, don't show that kind of partiality. So I can't impress you enough on how we do this, how we judge people. And I, I've been thinking back about when I first got into church. I came into the old Missionary Baptist Church in Orange, the city of Orange, in Orange, California. And I, in 1975, had long hair, about down to there. And being kind of in hippie fashion of the 70s, driving a nice Volkswagen bus, not a one painted all with flowers, had it all painted up, driving a Volkswagen bus. I wonder what those people thought when I came in that church door. I wonder what they thought when they saw, oh no, <laughs> we're being invaded by the hippies. But that's not the way that they treated me. 
That's not the way that they showed like or dislike. And so we have to recognize that sometimes, even though someone may come walking in the door, and nowadays maybe they've got purple hair or shaved head or a mohawk, whatever the, the, I'm not even up on all the styles, huh? You're probably saying, Brother Paul, that was long ago. That was, that's, that's past. The new styles. Don't get shook when somebody comes in and they're wearing the new style because let me tell you, haircuts. <laughs> Cars come and go. None of those things are important. The Lord is looking on the heart. We've got to be like Christ and looking at the value of a person's life, their heart. And so the emphatic phrase at the beginning is, my brethren, with respect to persons, or with a preferential treatment based on race, or wealth, or dress, or rank of social status, put all those things aside. Do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. Now that's an imperative command. He's saying, do not hold the faith of the Lord. Do not hold the Christian faith and hold it alongside of partiality. Does that make sense? In fact, this is a verb that carries the idea, do not be in the practice of being partial. Do not be in the practice of showing respect to this person and not to that person. It's absolutely inconsistent with the Christian life. It does not hold. And I want you to think about our example of Jesus Christ. The whole of our faith is based on the fact that God looks on the heart. The whole of our faith. Everything we know to be true about God is that the value of a person is based on the value of their soul. Talked about that lots last week. And the attitude of favoritism disregards that basic truth of our faith. So we've got to get that really in our mind. The basic truth of our faith is that the gospel is for everyone. Not for just those that look like we want them to be part. It's for everyone. And it's on the basis of the heart. The soul of a person is the issue here, not their outward appearance. Any favoritism that judges a person on the outside and plays up to people because they dress fine or because they have money or whatever, any of that kind of thing is sin. And James talks about that more in verse 9, as a matter of fact. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You see that in verse, chapter 2, verse 9. We need to understand the underlying substructure here of James, the whole epistle, the underlying substructure on which the principles of Christian living are built. The substructure in, is that of our salvation. That we are saved by grace through Jesus Christ. And now he's giving us a whole group of tests. And theologians, we call that soteriology. How is a person saved? How does a person come to Christ? Well, your soteriology, your, your belief in how you're saved, and there are lots of different ideas. Some say you've got to be good. You've got to earn it. You have to deserve it. You've got to do this, or you've got to do that, or maybe you need to be baptized, or you need to say just these words. But let me tell you that God looks on the heart. 
He's not looking at your works. He doesn't care what, you're, what you look like or where you are socially. You cannot get good enough and say, well, once I get good enough, then I'm going to come to church. That's the whole substructure of James here. He teaches us what faith is like. He's putting into practical effect. How do we live out our faith? How do we live out our new life? If we are saved, if we are the children of God, or maybe it should be since we are the children of God, we're going to act like the Lord. We're going to act like that. We're going to be different. If God's impartial, we need to be impartial. Peter says, honor the king. Paul says to submit to those who are in authority. But that's different. Submission and honor to the person is really to their office. We're honoring that office. That impartiality purely on the basis of an external appearance is really something else. That's important for us to recognize. Now notice how he makes the point very strongly. He says, with respect to persons, do not practice holding the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. He just really emphasizes by giving that little extra phrase at the end, the glory. It's my favorite Greek word. Sylvia always teases me for saying doxa, doxa, <laughs> glory. You ever walk around and just say, well, glory. Well, that's the Greek word doxa. You can walk around now, you can say doxa. If you didn't learn anything else, you learned that. And really what he is saying, it's a reference to Christ as him as the glory of God revealed. Christ is the glory of God. He is the divine presence of God. Now, remember, this was the first book of the New Testament which was written. And these were Jewish Christians just recently converted, just coming out of Judaism. So they knew about the glory of God walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. They knew about the glory, the Shekinah glory that was in the tabernacle. They knew about the Shekinah glory of God that was in the temple. And now what does John say in John 1:14? We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten. That is the Shekinah glory. And that's what James is telling us here. Jesus is the very glory of God. Jesus is that very example. So you look, you cannot hold the faith of Jesus Christ, who is the glory of God, and violate the nature of God with being partial. I think that's what James is telling us. You can't, on one hand, say, oh, I love God and I want to live like the Lord and then be partial and hate somebody because of the way that they look or where they've come from or any outward aspect like that. It just is not compatible. So that's the idea. That's his thought that Jesus came as God in the flesh, glory veiled in flesh. He took on our nature. He bore our sin. He took our curse. He was the glory of God in human form. But Jesus truly revealed the nature of God in that Jesus was without partiality. You know, his enemies saw that. Some of the Pharisees in Matthew twenty-two sixteen. 16, they recognized that Jesus did not show partiality to one or the other. The Pharisees sent 
unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, this is verse 16, Matthew 22, Master, we know that you are true and teach the way of God. What is the way of God? Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of man. That was the way of God. He didn't show partiality. He didn't care. And people, even his enemies, recognized that. Didn't matter if you were a fisherman. It didn't matter if you were a virtuous woman or a harlot. He looked on the heart. He saw the wealthy and he saw the poor the same. They all needed a savior. He saw everyone on the same boat. He saw the zealous religious man and the irreligious man on the same plane. He saw the high priest and the beggar. Whatever it was, he saw the law-abiding citizen and the criminal. He saw them all the same. It made no difference to him in terms of their worth, the worth of their soul. And whether a man was educated or uneducated, whether he was handsome or ugly, whether he was rich or poor, those things were of no concern to him whatsoever. He looked on the heart. His enemies saw it. He was the glory of God. And if one of the attributes of God is impartiality, and he who is the glory of God, the shining presence of God, who would also demonstrate that same impartiality, and he did. He is so utterly and absolutely and totally impartial. And someday, thank God, you and I will also be like that. One day, 1 John 3, 2 says, and we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. <laughs> we, we, we try to put off this old fallen nature, but whatever we are, whatever we've done, whatever we haven't done, the fullness of the grace of the salvation of God, it makes everyone to be exactly like unto Christ. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you haven't done. We remember that wonderful parable in Matthew 20. Remember where he says that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. No matter how long you work, no matter how much you do, no matter how much burden you bear, at the end of the day we receive the same eternal reward in our salvation. Utterly impartial. Now think about that. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. How then can believers who say they're children of God, that hold on to the faith of Jesus Christ, the glorious God incarnate, ever have respect to persons in this sense. Because you see, the leading one who is first, the one who is last will also be first. So now what's happened? We're all in the same place. Do you get that? So if you were last, now you've been brought up to be the first. If you were first, <laughs> you were right there. So in other words, he's saying God is not partial. We're all in the same boat. We are all going to get that together. So let's look at the example of verse 2. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. Let's just think about that for a moment. God is impartial. And so now he is giving an example for it's the probability. If this happens, for if this were to, so it's leading us into an illustration and it justifies. And by the way, it's interesting because he is explaining the principle of verse one, but he uses the term 
synagogue. For if they're coming to your synagogue, soon, together. That's what it meant. It meant where you gather together. If there comes one into your assembly, that's literally, the Greek says, a gold-fingered man in shining bright apparel. A gold-fingered man in shining bright apparel. And there comes in a poor man in shabby clothes. So here's the picture. It's a vivid picture that James is painting for us. Can't you just kind of see it within your mind's eye? Your assembly, that synagogue... By the way, let me just say that James does know the word that we get our word church, ecclesia. He uses it over in chapter 5 and verse 14. But these are just new, newly saved Jewish believers. And so he's saying that when you've gathered together, when you've come together in the assembly, so he's using that term that they would have understood. He understood that they would be coming in and gathering to hear the word of God. So their whole heritage understood the assembling of God's people together as a synagogue. It still refers to that church service. So I just said that so that you don't get confused. But this also gives us a good idea that James being written by such an early date, they hadn't fully transitioned over to the word that we use as ecclesia for church, the called out assembly. This is a church meeting. And into the church comes a visitor. The first visitor is a man gold-fingered in shining clothes. That's what it says literally. So let me tell you about his fingers. You might say, well, Brother Paul, how do you know about his fingers? I'll just say, because it was so customary that rings were customary among the Jews, but gold rings were not so customary because of their expense. So to have a gold ring... But the Jews wore rings. Remember in Luke 15, when the prodigal son comes home, what does the father do? Takes a robe and he puts rings on the son's fingers. Didn't say he put gold rings. Gold rings were very expensive. Very few poor people could afford a gold ring. So here comes a man, and the text says, who is gold-fingered. That's literally what it says. Not just one ring. He's got them all over his fingers. He's got gold all over. And the most ostentation pe people in the old and the ancient world would wear rings on every finger except for the middle fingers. And they wanted really to display their wealth. So that's what he's talking about here. As a matter of fact, you could go and you could go to a certain vendor and rent rings. You could go and they had people that would rent you a ring. You could rent a gold ring if you were going to a wedding. Today we have people that will go, they'll rent a tuxedo, rent something like that. They're going to a wedding. The same thing happened with the Jews. You could go, you could rent a gold ring, and you could show off, but you had to go pay the price and turn it back in, right? This man comes in, and he's got gold fingers. He's got them everywhere. By the way... Clement of Alexander later said that Christians, because this had become so ostentatious, it had become such a, a fashion, he told the Christians that they, should, they could wear one ring, but it should have the emblem of a dove or an anchor or a fish as a seal. And then that, don't be ostentation. So that was the reaction to some of the abuse. Well, here comes a man, and it says that he is in final peril. The word is lampra. We get our word light, lamp, bright shining. 
So here's a man that's got gold fingers and he's got bright, shiny clothes. Loud colors is really what that means. It could mean sparkling. It could mean brilliant or maybe had certain ornamentation. Could mean any of those kinds of things. It's the same word that was used of the gorgeous apparel of Herod Antipas. And remember then when they were mocking Christ at his trial and they put on a gorgeous robe, an ostentation, it's the same word, an ostentatious, a loud, a brightly colored, and they put it on Jesus in order to mock him. It's used in Acts 10, verse 30, shining garments of the angel that came to Cornelius. It's that kind of just knockout clothes, I guess you could say. Everybody else was wearing normal stuff, but here comes a guy with gold all over his fingers, brazen, flashy, loud ornamentation clothing. You got the picture. Now, there's no problem with that. This guy's an unbeliever. No big deal. You don't stop him at the door and say, wait a minute, you got to put your sackcloth on. No, that's not what James is saying. You let him in. The man is welcome. He's an unbeliever. He needs to hear the gospel. He's not condemned for his dress. That is not the issue here. This section is not about teaching people how to dress. That sin that he's about to talk about has nothing to do with that. Then there comes in another man. This is a poor man, a really poor man. Tokos is the word. It means that he's so poor that he has to beg. In other words, he has one robe, and he has to work in that robe, and he sleeps in that robe. He sweats in that robe. He lives in that robe. That's all he has. Not a happy sight, is it? He's at the lowest level of the social strata. Probably smells. He comes in. He's vile, means filthy, is smelly, it's dirty, it's shabby, it carries all of that idea. He comes in this common guy with this filthy thing, the only piece of clothing that he has. Nobody stops him at the door and says, oh, let's put a fine robe on you. You can't come in. That's not what the topic is here. They don't say, well, wait a minute, you step outside, or you've got to go dress up before you can come in. They're not looking at that. But when someone comes in, they, ha they have no option. They're just as welcomed. But that's really not even the issue here. Say, so what is the issue? Verse 3. Verse 3. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand there, or you sit here at my footstool. That's where the sin comes in. In other words, you say to this one, sit here in a good place. What does that mean regarding respect? You're looking to him, you're giving him some certain favor. You look on him with respect. You're giving this guy all of the attention. He attracts everybody's attention. People are looking around saying, oh, boy, wouldn't that be a great guy to have? Look at all the gold. Look at what he could do for the church. Look at what he could do for us. Wowee. Look at that guy. Fine clothes, dripping in gold. We need that guy. Maybe somebody rushes over and says, here, sit in this good place. You know, in the synagogues, there were very few chairs. Some had a footstool. There were some benches around. And 
the best seats were on the east side. And the reason for that is because any windows that would have been there would have allowed the light to come in. You could have seen better if you were sitting on the eastern wall. You could have had a little more warmth from the sunlight in the afternoon. So that was the preferred seating. That's where the, remember Jesus talked about that the Pharisees and the scribes, they wanted the preferred places on that eastern wall of the synagogue. Well, that's what you say to this guy. Oh, sit here in a good place. You want to make sure that he's comfortable. You want to make sure that he has a place of honor, a prominent place. There's a little social climbing here, isn't there? A little hoping for his favor. Maybe to come under and get some of his influence. Maybe to get something from him. Give him the seat with a comfortable place. The preferable place of the guest. You want to know something? There's nothing wrong with giving him a good seat. Nothing wrong with that at all. By the way, many of the people in the synagogue sat on the floor, would sit cross-legged, or they would stand. If you didn't want to sit cross-legged on the floor, you would stand in the back. And as I said, then they had certain places where those were the, where the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests always wanted to sit. But that's not wrong. I think it's nice to do that. But when you say, and this is where the sin comes in, you say to the man with the outlandish clothes, oh, you sit here in this fine seat and not to the man in the shabby clothes. So here it is, verse 3, you say to the poor guy, that's what he's saying here, you say to him that's poor, sit there, stand there, or sit here under my footstool. In other words, I don't care where you sit, just please, Go get somewhere. Go find somewhere. Get it kind of, will you, will you find where you're going to go and get there? That's the idea. That's what James is saying. Sit there or sit here beside my footstool. And, and just an idea, when, you, when it says here, hupo is the word under, it could mean, and as oftentimes translated, beside. So you sit beside my footstool. In other words, just sit on the floor. But will you just do something? Will you just get there? Somebody's got a chair and they've got a footstool, but they don't want to give that up. <laughs> he won't give up the chair to the poor guy. He won't give up the stool to the poor guy. He said, just sit down, but get where you're going. I'm sitting here. I want my feet to be where my feet are. I want to be as comfortable as I can. Just get out of the way. That's what James is saying. You have a choice, my friend. Stand, sit, just do it. Now that's the sin. Now why would you do that to the guy because he has shabby clothes? Because there's something built into our fallenness that's partial to people who look nice, who smell nice, who are dripping with gold. That's just how it is. But that's not how God sees us. Now that's the beginning of the example if, and, and here comes then in verse 4, and this is what he's talking about. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Are you not then partial? Aren't you making distinctions among yourselves? Are you not separating? Are you not dividing? And the answer is yes, you're guilty of being partial. Yes, you're guilty. That's not Godlike. God is not like that, and it's a serious sin. The word evil means vicious. You've become judges with evil intent. You've become judges with vicious intent. 
That's the carnality of the flesh. There's no place for that in the people of God. We're not following after Christ's example if we begin to look at people. And so this is so basic and so important for us that when Paul was concluding his letter to the Romans in, in chapter 15, verse 5, he says, Now the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. He's saying, treat everybody alike, so that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice also verse 7, it says, Wherefore receive ye one another. The idea is with open arms. With open arms you take in everyone. No respect of persons. How did God receive you? With open arms with wide open arms. He doesn't care what you have. He doesn't care what you look like. He doesn't care what kind of car you drive. It's unfortunate that in our churches today, we get clicks. And you know what? When churches begin to get clicks, they begin to die. There's an interesting book, The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And that's what he talks about. He talks about when churches get clickish. And you know what? When you're in that click, and we've visited around, and sometimes, you know, being visitors, you think, well, somebody will come and talk to us. And everybody goes by. They've got to go talk to their friends. They're going to go out to lunch with their friends. And they forget about that person that's just come in. And maybe they've come in, and they're homeless, and they are hungry. And they would like to go. They kind of smell. They're not really dressed to go where we want to go. You see, it's wrong to show that kind of partiality. And it kills the Lord's churches. And we're seeing it widespread in our day and age. We're seeing it very much. And that's why James is telling us it is sin, it's evil intent, it's vicious. And sometimes we don't recognize how vicious it is because we get into it and we don't see and we don't recognize what's happening on the outside. We are children of God. We're in the family of God. We're in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are to be made up of common folks, but we are uncommon. We are a peculiar people. We're not like the world. We're not to be looking at the outside. We're to be looking at the desire that someone may have for coming to know Christ. What led them into those doors? What brought them into this place? They had a desire, they had a heart. And if it weren't for people having a heart, reaching out to helping, reaching out to those maybe who had little, it's not wrong to have much, but we're told to be good stewards of it. It's not wrong to have little, but what do we do? It is wrong when we show discrimination in regard to the things that we have. That's not what God does. That's not what we should do. If you show favoritism, verse 4 says, then you're partial. And that means you're not like God and you're not like Christ. But on the other hand, you become a judge with vicious intent and your behavior is anti-Christian. That's a harsh message. You want to know why James says, my brother, <laughs> I'm about to tell you something kind of harsh. I'm about to tell you something that might just strike you right between the eyes. But I love you and I care for you. The inconsistency of this is going to be pointed out again in verse 5. And Lord willing, we'll pick up on that next week. We'll look more into that. 
because I think that this is something that's been hurting our Lord's churches for so long, and that's something that Satan wants to do. Because if you're not on the in crowd, if you don't look like the way that people think you should look, then, well, they can come, but we don't really care about them. Vicious intent. That's not the character of Jesus Christ. There was a man who was living among the tombs. He had been cutting himself. He was unclothed, the scripture says. He was a lunatic. People thought, just, oh, better stay away from him. And Christ cast out those demons. You remember, there was a whole legion of demons that went into the swine. And this man wanted to follow Jesus because Christ saw the man and not the condition. Christ saw what he needed. He needed Jesus Christ, and he wanted to come along. And what did Jesus say? You go tell your brother. You go back to your city, and you tell them that God loves even those that are demon-possessed, but he'll cast out those demons. You cannot have the Holy Spirit and the demons living side by side. How about your life? We're going to bring this to a close, but I want you to think about what kind of partiality do we show? Are we walking like Jesus Christ? Are we following after his example of being impartial? Or do we, like this world, look at who has what? Oh, they look good, they smell good, they dress nice. I like that person. They make me feel good when I'm around. Maybe we need to be looking at the heart. If your heart is not right with God, we invite you today that God is there with open arms. He has sent His only begotten Son, the glory of God, Jesus Christ, come in the flesh so that He would die to bear your sins and my sins. And it's for everyone. No one would be excluded. There's nothing you can do that would keep you from the love of God. There's nothing. No sin is too great that God cannot forgive it, except if you continue to reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You reject the conviction of the Holy Spirit. How sad. Don't allow that to happen in your life. Come to know Christ today. He died for you that you could have life. Child of God, we evaluate our lives. We look at it. We see how James has, has given us such a bold, strong message that he's called us. Don't be like the world, but be like Jesus Christ, our example, who is impartial, who saw the need of the heart rather than the outward, who saw the need. And don't just say to that person, well, be filled and go your way. When God has put something in your hand, let's be good stewards of all that he's given us. When he's put something in your hands, how can I use this to you? How can I use this for your glory, Lord? How can this be to edify your people, and how can it be used to further the gospel? That's why we meet on the first day of the week, Sunday. We give the first and the best of the Lord. Will you give your life today? Will you give your very first, the very best of your life today? He gave his very best. He sent his only begotten son to die for you, for me. How can we be partial? 
Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the message. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions or perhaps you have questions on a different topic, let us know. Our information is given on the website or you can reach us at sclministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Tombstone said he is risen just as he